Are you ruthless enough, cunning enough, remorseless enough to take on the World Economic Consortium? Well, let's find out with Crusader this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Welcome to episode 73 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, here to talk to you about a game from the Dawson pre-Windows XP gaming era. Man, it feels like forever since I've done a show. Um, the summer's here and uh, things have started rolling, let me tell you. Um, you know, when it starts to get nice outside, I, I, I'm an outdoorsy kind of guy, or at least uh, I've become so in the past couple of years, uh, probably about... Since the year eh, about 2010, I guess I kind of started getting back into, uh, you know, being outside and doing stuff and fitness and all that noise. And um, last year, if you guys remember, you probably may or may not, but uh, the end of the season, kind of around uh, Labor Day, which for people who don't have Labor Day is uh, kind of first week of September kind of a thing. Uh, my wife and I did, uh, did a little try a triathlon. So kind of really, really short 350 meter swim, uh, 10 kilometer bike and 2.5 kilometer run, you know, just to kind of get our feet wet, see if we liked it. And after that we did like it and we're like, yeah, great. And we bought nice bikes and, and this and that. And then this year it kind of rolled around and, um, you know, my wife was, and I were talking and, and so Fran, my wife, you know, she, she, she goes to me and she's like, you know, Joe, I don't, I don't think I want to train for uh, for another triathlon. I think it's, it's too much work. Uh, you know, it's too many different things to do. And, uh, you know, I just want to be able to, to go to the gym and, and do my stuff and, and blah, blah, blah. So that's fine. And, um, we had a long weekend here a little while ago, a couple weeks ago, Victoria day, which was the, the week before Memorial day for, for all the Americans. And, uh, we went back to Tromblon cause that's what we do. Mont Tromblon, beautiful resort. It's great to ski in the winter. It's great to do stuff outside in the summer. So we went there and, uh, they happened to have an Ironman there. That's the, uh, the, the Mont Tromblon Ironman. And so we went and we rode our bikes and we ran a little bit and uh, this and that. And all of a sudden, my wife turns to me and goes, oh, you know what I said about uh, not wanting to do a triathlon? Well, that's not true. I want to train for a triathlon. So uh, turns out we're training for a triathlon. <laughs> it's going to be in August. So um have to swim and bike and run and uh, do all that. And then on top of that, I'd been planning to do uh, an 80 kilometer uh, mini Fondo bike race here in uh, here around Toronto. And, uh, we had some, uh, we went to a party with some friends over the weekend and, uh, sort of convinced them to do uh, a half marathon in uh, October with us. So, uh, the summer <laughs> turns out is going to consist of, uh, a whole lot of running, a whole lot of biking and a whole lot of swimming. So unfortunately, uh, that's probably one of the main reasons, aside from the fact that I was away one weekend, why the show was late. And, uh, I'm going to try very hard to stay on schedule, but Lord, I'm going to be spending a lot of time outside. I have a really nice farmer's tan right now from my bike Jersey. And, um, yeah, I think I'm going to be sore a lot of the time. Wow. I think I, I got myself in over my head, but what are you going to do? Anyways, enough about that. Um, you guys don't need to know, but, uh, you know, I like these little part where I get to tell you about what I'm doing. Cause, uh, I like to talk. So uh, let's let's roll on to things. Uh, Email-wise, I know I usually read some emails around now. Uh, we do have some emails, but there's none that are kind of uh, of a general nature. Uh, usually around the summer, the email volume goes down a little because just like me, you guys like to go outside, and uh, I understand that. That's cool. So uh, I do, though, want to uh, congratulate my good buddy uh, Rico, the host of the uh, very long-running Treks and Sci-Fi podcast, he is the winner uh, from uh, of the big Star Wars giveaway that uh, I announced around uh, May 4th through some stats into random.org and uh, it pulled out his his name. So congrats, Rico. I hope you enjoy, I think, was it 10 or 11 Star Wars games? Uh, really, really great giveaway. And uh, thanks a lot to, uh, to Joseph Laverne for uh, giving them to me. 
giving me all those keys from the Humble Bundle. And stay tuned for June's giveaway. I'll probably announce it yeah, over next week kind of a thing. And uh, we'll see. Maybe we'll do something a little different this time. Maybe we'll give away an actual thing. But uh, keep an eye on, uh, on social media and on the next episode. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for All right, nice and quick to start off the show this week. Let's get into things. So this time around, I'm covering a game series that finds itself on my list of shame. And that game series is Crusader. Now, Crusader is a series of two games developed by Origin Systems and published by Electronic Arts. The first game, entitled Crusader No Remorse, came out in the year 1995. So like we do, let's let's talk about genre. So Crusader is pretty straightforward. This is an action game. And, uh, you know, well, action is, is a pretty broad term. There's certainly a few defining characteristics which define action gaming. So an action game is generally defined as any game where the majority of challenges are of a physical nature. That is running, jumping, dodging, and of course, any variety of fighting. Now, action games are usually split into uh, levels or missions, uh, and most of these levels or missions consist of uh, one or more goals. As always, these goals can comprise something as simple as escape the level, find the end, to, uh, you know, long, variable, branching, story-fueled arcs and trees involving rescue, search and destroy, and, and many, many more things. So you, as the player, are usually put in control of a single hero character who has a certain set of skills. Either you have something like physical strength, uh, the ability to use various weapons, or other off- offensive and defensive capabilities, um, magic the use of technology, uh, the ability to influence people, all kinds of stuff like that. Now, you complete the game, generally, by uh, navigating each level, defeating enemies, and completing your objectives, all the while making sure you don't die. Now, power-ups are usually strewn throughout levels, which can do things like restore health, provide better weapons, uh, add defense, and, of course, more. Now, action games can be viewed from pretty much any angle. You know, we're used to seeing a lot of uh, first-person perspectives in in first-person shooter games, but uh, Crusader is actually shown to us from a third-person isometric perspective. We'll get to more details on that in a bit, but suffice it to say, as long as there's fighting and, uh, you know, a modicum of uh, levels and power-ups and things like that, we're looking at an action game. All right, story time. So, being that this is a game from one of my favorite companies, Origin, uh, the world Crusader exists in is oddly developed. Probably a lot more than it needs to be, much like the world of, of games like Wing Commander. So, by the end of the 20th century, most world governments were strongly interdependent on each other. Because of this, No single government or small group of governments had enough power to enforce financial prudence on others. Now, this led to an escalating cycle of borrowing to cover short-term debts and short-term crises, uh, which really only led to more more frequent occurrences of these uh, short-term financial issues, and it was kind of like this vicious cycle. So things just kept getting worse. People kept borrowing, going more into debt, anarchy kept growing, this and that. So to combat this, because frankly the world was going to hell in a handbasket, national leaders agreed to form small economic organizations to help restore order to the economy. Uh, They would serve to to shield society and the economy from destabilizing forces and and also to offer relief to citizens from poverty and civil disorder, which had been running rampant for, uh, for many years. Now, these organizations took the form of continental based economic watchdogs and uh, they soon began to absorb local governments into their structures. Uh, You know, initially, Leaders of some countries did this of their own volition. It's like, hey, you know what? We're going to be a lot better off if, if Zimbabwe joins the African you know, caucus or whatever it is. And eventually, though, those people, those, those governments that were holding out ended up being forced to join by their populations via mm-hmm. civil unrest and the like. Now, of course, these populations had to completely subjugate themselves to their new economic masters. You know, this imperialist attitude, of course, eventually led to unrest, crime, and much more 
economic turmoil. Because frankly, as much as people thought they'd be better off, uh, no one likes living under an iron fist, right? So this eventually led to the merging of these continental organizations into a super organization, which was the basis of the formation of the World Economic Consortium, or the WEC, or maybe even the WEC, if you want. Now, while the WEC itself claimed only to be an economic regulatory body, frankly, in every way that mattered, it had become the world government and the seat of all economic power on the planet Earth. As we see in the game's pack-in flavor documentation, uh, the WEC is run as the ultimate corporation. Citizens are considered citizen partners. Basically, they're stockholders in the government. Their work productivity is paramount. It is more important than their personal well-being, that of their family, or anything else you can think of. The WEC is also a scientific meritocracy. Now, in theory, those who can contribute the most to improving productivity and profitability through technological development are the most recognized. Realistically, it's probably the people that bribe the right people. Because, hey, money makes the world go round. So, to make all this stuff happen, to make the WEC work, they tax their citizen partners over 90% of their income and use their military forces to maintain order in the working populace. This is where we come in. Oh man, we shouldn't have let them go. Shut up, Retech. They were civilians, not rebels. You keep making noise and come in, we'll live. Did you see the shell casings? That wasn't a rebel ambush. Commander ordered the Metron unit to take out our train. Fire. They just stepped in. Well, not the most uh, auditorially uh, descriptive intro in the world, but uh, check it out on YouTube and uh, it'll make a bit more sense. Anyways, what you have seen there or heard there is the captain. You play the captain. The captain is a silencer. Now, silencers are the WEC's special forces, the best of the best, the creme de la creme of the WEC military. They sport red full body armor and helmets that are pretty reminiscent of, uh, of Boba Fett's Mandalorian helmet from uh, Star Wars. Um, at least from the perspective of uh, the fact that it's a T-shaped visor. It has a T-shaped visor. Uh, silencers are highly trained. They're recruited for life and are known to be intensely loyal to the WEC. While they're undergoing training, they actually undergo psych screening and conditioning to remove any references they have to their past lives. While the general belief is that this conditioning is super effective and irreversible, the intro presents us with a slightly different picture. As you may have heard, if you can understand the, the mumbling, uh, three silencers fail to carry out their orders, uh, the captain included. They are supposed to kill a whole bunch of, uh, of rebels, and it seems that either they let them go or the rebels escape. It seems like they let them go. Um, as a result of this, the WEC sends out a Vetron, which is basically uh, an ED-209 looking mech, to, uh, to kill them for their failure. Now, the captain's squad mates are killed in an ambush, but he survives to destroy the mech with uh, a bullet to the face. He, he then begins the process of defecting to the Resistance, which is a large organized group intent on bringing down the WEC and restoring freedom to the citizens of the world. 
This is where we begin the game. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, gameplay. So the resistance wastes no time at all. You get your first mission briefing immediately from General Quentin Maxis, who we are led to believe is the head of all resistance military forces. Maxis has vouched for you to central the general leadership of the resistance. First, let me say welcome to the resistance, Captain. I'm sure you realize that Central thinks you're a spy. But I've reviewed your debriefing tapes, and I have a hunch that I understand what makes you tick. Enough so that I've persuaded Central to give you a chance. One shot to prove your sudden change of heart. You are to spearhead an attack to take a consortium refinery offline, permanently. An informant will meet you there and provide you with a security card that will allow you entrance into the facility. Your principal objective is the thermal coupler on the fourth level. Once you have placed the pack, one of our extraction specialists will contact you with coordinates of the nearest teleport pad we can commandeer. Consult your data link if you have any further questions. Good luck. Maxis out. So, with the faith of the general and the skepticism of Central, you teleport into the refinery via a teleport pad, and the fun begins. Your goal is to meet up with your contact, get an access card, and then make your way to the fourth level of the facility and destroy the refinery's thermal coupler. Now, to begin, you're armed with your standard issue BA-40 semi-automatic pistol. Uh, We find ourselves in a WEC facility, crawling with civilian workers, WC guards, and servo mechs like the one that uh, we blew away in the intro. While the environments of your missions may vary, the procedure for completing them tends to be pretty similar. You proceed through the level room by room. Uh, as you exit the edge of a screen, the camera will recenter on uh, the next view. Rooms contain a variety of enemies, uh, also civilian bystanders, servo mechs, traps, and a whole bunch of other interactable and destructible items. At the end of the day, it's up to you how to approach things. There's usually a few ways to overcome any obstacles. Now, do you kill civilians or do you spare them? There's no penalty for killing them. Plus, you can loot their corpses for credits. Uh, guards and mechs don't give you much choice, they'll attack you on sight. In fact, quite a bit of the game world is destructible, uh, from barrels and machinery to sections of wall. This world is much more interactive than what we're used to in both first-person shooters and even combat RPGs, which this game frankly sort of does remind me of, uh, except without the RPG elements. It's more, it's a, it's a combat. <laughs> you know, some destructible objects uh, will cause splash damage, which is certainly helpful when uh, traversing a level. In fact, the environment is also something that is important for you to take into account. Like I said, there's usually a few ways to deal with enemies. There's a straightforward go-in guns blazing, which which certainly works, and it's a lot of fun. However, you can also approach rooms or situations more strategically. I mean, there there may be some explosive items nearby that, uh, that you can snipe to take out a group of enemies. There may be a gas pipe you can ignite. There may be a steam vent. Uh, You also, at times, have opportunities to take control of mechs and turrets, which you can send in as your proxy. Mechs especially are fairly well armored and uh, can wreak havoc in uh, a space where you'd otherwise be torn to shreds by uh, by a whole whack of enemies. Now, obviously, these same environmental factors can, uh, can also work against you. Everything that can hurt an enemy can obviously also hurt you. Uh, you also you need to be very wary of uh, security cameras that are strewn throughout each level. If these cameras catch a glimpse of you, alarm sound, sending whatever facility you're in uh, into a lockdown. Now, while the alert is active, enemies will teleport in on a regular basis and uh, keypad locks will become unusable. To disable alarms, you can find panels or workstations peppering the area, shutting these things down, let you proceed. So you certainly have the option of playing things totally offensively, or you can take things a bit slower and, and, you know, think about it. Of course, though, since this is an action game, now the point's to damage things, right? So to do this, you get a pretty good variety of weapons, ranging from uh, pretty standard semi-automatic pistols to laser rifles, plasma guns, and uh, a pretty big BFG that, uh, that people think is pretty cool. As you may expect, each gun has its pluses and its minuses, and, uh, you know, it's different profile. We have 
things like low damage, high accuracy pistols to kind of more shotgun type close in weapons to long range, slow firing sniper rifles. It's, it's pretty, pretty wide. Now on top of guns, you gain access to quite a bit of uh, different pieces of equipment. You can pick up various types of bombs and mines in addition to shields and med packs, which uh, restore health and energy. And, uh, you know, they're very cool. I actually like the uh, the spider bombs. You, you set them down and uh, you can walk them somewhere. You can walk them around and, and once they smash into something, they blow up. They, they definitely come in handy. So how do we traverse the level? We got all this equipment. We got all this stuff. How do we get across the level? Well, this is where I guess we could say the, the fun part comes in. Uh, you can use either the keyboard, the mouse, or some combination thereof. Now, unlike most traditional action games, which uh, tend to take place from a first-person perspective, as I said, Crusader takes place from a third-person isometric view, much like uh, combat RPGs like Fallout 1 and 2 or Diablo. So what does isometric actually mean? Well, in simple terms... An isometric perspective is actually just a three-quarter view. Uh, this is generally represented by placing the camera slightly above the plane of the world, so you're looking kind of on a down angle onto the action. Now, from a mathematical perspective, what's really happening here is that you're creating a view based on the three standard Cartesian axes. That's, you know, X for across, Y for up and down, and Z for kind of in and out. What an isometric view represents is a viewing position that creates equal spacing between each of these axes. That is an angle of 120 degrees. Now, this is actually a pretty standard method of uh, representing 3G, 3D objects and environments on a 2D plane, you know, in kind of like technical drawing and, and things like that. And since that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish here, it works out pretty well. What works out less well in relation to getting across the level, are the controls. Now, unlike a game like Diablo, which is a fully mouse-driven click fest, Crusader tries to cram quite a bit of control into uh, the numeric keypad. Having numlock on or off changes your input style with numlock off. Your controls are in reference to the screen, moving the captain in the direction of uh, whichever arrow you are uh, pressing. Having numlock on focuses a lot more on rotation, and I find this control scheme a lot more useful when you're in combat. Forward and back arrows cause you to advance or retreat. The left and right arrows control your rotation, and uh, the upper diagonals, that's a 7 and 9 on the keypad, control your sidestepping, so you're strafing, and 1 and 3 cause you to do a dodge roll left or right. Now, as an additional option between these two control schemes, you can also use the mouse to control your, or your uh, rotation. Now, in theory, this all sounds pretty good. I mean, you've got a bunch of ways to move around, both in an exploratory fashion by just kind of, you know, using the arrow keys to move forward and turn and this and that, and also for combat by using the rotation-based controls. Unfortunately, it's just a little bit too complicated. There's a reason the Diablo-style click fest has endured for isometric games. It's, it's pretty intuitive. You click somewhere, that's where your guy goes. If it's an enemy, he hits it. Now, this is less intuitive. I often found myself rotating the wrong way, missing shots and getting killed. Uh, you know, the system just isn't that responsive. Like when you rotate, you rotate pretty slowly, uh, especially for a game with as much fast-paced combat as this one. It's, 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 it's really challenging. Let's put it that way. I mean, you do eventually get the hang of it, but every once in a while you get balled up or you realize you're in the wrong mode and it's too late to properly switch. The controls are certainly what makes me question if the game holds up or not. We'll find out about that later. So as you progress through your missions, you gain access to the Rebel Base Camp. Here you can interact with NPCs and uh, use your looted credits to, uh, to upgrade your gear. You do this over 15 pretty lengthy missions, culminating in a final assault on a consortium superweapon, which threatens the destruction of cities all over the world. Uh, you interact with NPCs and watch the plot unfold through short FMV sequences, which are um, about on par with other FMV games at the time, complete with uh, my favorite FMV tropes uh, in the world. You know, virtual sets, low-budget costumes, and uh, pretty crappy video interlacing. As always, I'm certain there's way more, there's a lot more detail I can go to on, you know, the different kinds of weapons, the different kinds of enemies and all that, but I think this kind of gives you the gist of, of the gameplay. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
So what does it take to run Crusader No Remorse? Well, we're looking at a minimum of DOS 5.0, at least a 486 DX266 megahertz, my favorite computer in the world, as I mentioned last time. Of course, to go with that DX2, you need at least eight megs of system RAM and 30 megs of hard drive space. Now, if you really wanna play with the big boys, you probably want a Pentium, you probably want 16 megs of RAM, and you probably want 50 megs of drive space, but it'll run on the 486. Now, graphically, the game ran in 640 by 480 SVGA at 256 colors. So you needed a graphics card that could spit that out, which at the time was actually a little bit challenging to, uh, to get your hands on. From a technical perspective, not that we haven't already been talking about a technical perspective, maybe we should say from a uh, code base perspective, the game ran on a modified version of the Ultima 8 Pagan engine. Now, Ultima 8 had come out in 1994 and already did isometric views at SVGA resolutions. So, uh, as usual, in order to get the game out quicker and uh, not to reinvent the wheel, the code base was pulled, modified where needed, and uh, used as the basis for uh, the systems in Crusader No Remorse. Now, Ultima 8 itself has a bit of a reputation, and I'm sure I'll eventually get to some kind of Ultima show. And, uh, you know, Ultima 8, when it released, well, it was a little bit of a mess. But uh, by this time, the engine had been well-patched, and, uh, you know, this is why it was selected for use in uh, Crusader. It was, it was pretty solid. Now... Music. The music in Crusader is pretty epic. Now, you'd think that around 1995, we'd be looking at either General MIDI or the beginnings of digital audio tracks. Well, if you think that, you would be incorrect. Uh, Crusader used the Asylum sound system. Now, this was a mod music system. Now, I'm about 99% sure I've never discussed mod music before. I know some of the guys have discussed it on the uh, on the Hangouts, but I've never talked about it. And I will say off the bat that I don't have a ton of experience with it, aside from listening to some tracks and watching all the little graphical doodads jump around on, uh, on the tracker. I know for a fact that Tomer, Trolls, Brian and Chris from Square Waves, and a whole bunch of other folks know a ton more about mod music than I do, so I pre-apologize for getting something wrong here. So mod or tracker music is basically a form of sequenced audio. Now, in this way, it's very similar to MIDI. However, there is one major philosophical difference here. MIDI is hardware dependent. That is, you can record a track to a MIDI file and assign an instrument to each track and sequence out your song. However, the sound of each MIDI instrument is dependent on which hardware it's playing back on. Play a track on an AdLib versus a Sound Blaster FM synth versus an MT32 versus a later general MIDI device, and you will have a very different experience each time. Each device will be playing the same set of notes, but they will not sound the same at all. Now, mod files get around this by not depending on hardware to generate tones. They store samples of each instrument in the mod file itself. Now, a sample is exactly what it sounds like. You take a small excerpt or a sample of another audio track and include it in your mod file as an instrument. I mean, a sample could be of anything. It could be some interesting tone, an actual musical instrument, a bird chirping, someone farting. I mean, it could literally be anything. So now there is now a small digital recording embedded within your file, which is used as the instrument for a given track. Now, what does this mean? Well, unlike MIDI, which uh, will sound like whatever the hardware tells it to sound like, a mod file will sound the same anywhere you play it, since all of the information about how each track should sound is embedded within the file. Now, this does make mod music files pretty a bit bigger than MIDI, but it's still orders of magnitude smaller than a pure digital audio recording, because this is not a recording. This has small recordings of each instrument, and then it's just playing a sequence in those sounds. So mod was originally an Amiga thing, which is probably why I don't know much about it. And uh, it was designed initially to run natively on uh, Amiga sound hardware. Now, because of this, the files originally supported four audio channels and up to 15 instruments. Now, later on, this was expanded to 32 channels and 31 instruments, and of course, support was uh, ported to other platforms, including the PC. 
Now, mod music was a huge part of the demo scene, which I know almost nothing about. Uh, one of these days, I'll have to get some of the guys to do like a guest show or something just on the demo scene. It's a super cool aspect of PC history that I took very, very little part in, aside from listening to uh, Axel F. Mod, <laughs> the uh, Beverly Hills Cop theme. So the mod music for Crusader was composed, composed? <laughs> it was composed even. The mod music for Crusader was composed by Andrew Sega and Dan Gardepe of Stray Light Productions. Now these two musicians were incredibly well known in the tracker music community. Crusader was the first game they worked on together, but uh, would eventually move on to work on other games, including Chaz Jackrabbit 2, Tyrion, Unreal, and Deus Ex. Uh, I believe Sega left the company around the time of Unreal, or Unreal Tournament, but uh, suffice it to say they were together for uh, this game and its sequel. So I said it before and I'll say it again. The music in this game is awesome. It's a cool mix of various forms of kind of hard rock distortion guitar type stuff and electronica that suits the dystopian world perfectly. I highly recommend you seek it out and give it a listen. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. The Crusader series is the brainchild of one Tony Zurovic. Now, after graduating from the University of Texas at Austin with an electrical engineering degree in 1989, he quickly got a job at one of the preeminent gaming companies of my childhood, Origin Systems. Yep, this isn't a guy that went out there and did some stuff and got a crappy job and then got another crappy job. He went straight from school, boom, to Origin. Now, one of his first assignments was as a programmer on Ultima 7, and uh, he would eventually become the lead programmer for the entire Ultima group. Now, by 1994, Origin had been acquired by uh, our friends at Electronic Arts, and uh, with his successful leadership of the Ultima programmers, he was able to convince EA execs to let him design a game of his own. So for two months... He worked on uh, an idea and developing a story, a world, and some basic, uh, you know, some basic designs for uh, for his game. He wanted to make the game as visceral and as entertaining as one of his favorite games, Wolfenstein 3D. So, you'd assume that means he would make a first-person shooter. Well, based on the result, that obviously wasn't the case. As Zorovec says in interview, he grew up in a time where there were many fun third-person games. While the rest of the industry saw first-person as the only option to make an action game, Zurvek saw it simply as one of his many options. He wanted to create a large dystopian world that was immensely detailed. Now, to do this, he decided to take a chance and develop the game in 640x480S VGA. Now, not many computers of the time could display graphics at this resolution, and they absolutely could not do it at the speed or the size required for a first-person shooter. Another thing that was considered a requirement for a good action game by the industry was smooth scrolling, as implemented by Mr. John Carmack. Well, guess what? Computers of the time couldn't do smooth scrolling in SVGA either. So, when your character moved off the edge of the screen, the full scene would refresh old school style. As for the design of the main character, I even just said it myself, you know, even without really thinking. Being a huge Star Wars fan, you can very quickly see the similarity between the captain's helmet and the helmet of our good friend Boba Fett. Well, it turns out the captain was in no way associated with everyone's favorite bounty hunter. Once the game got approved by EA execs, Zurovec was able to start gathering a team. Uh, he gathered up artists and programmers and designers into a group and named it the Loose Cannon Production Group. Now, this group was one of four development groups within Origin. Now, one member of this new group was lead artist Beverly Garland. Zurovec had a general idea of, of what he wanted the main character to look like. 
he knew he wanted a backpack. He knew he wanted armor and, you know, the ability to attach various pieces of, uh, of gadgetry. Now, Garland came up with some sketches that uh, initially consisted of a half helmet and partial body armor, more like kind of a SWAT team futuristic type officer. Now, Tony didn't feel like this look evoked the sense of power and intimidation that he wanted. Eventually, she started working uh, a T-slitted helmet and full body armor into the designs, and Zorovec liked it. It reminded him of the ancient Spartans. When they started circulating this design, this is when people kind of started commenting on how he looked a lot like Boba Fett. Now, this upset Garland, and she wanted to scrap it and do a redesign. She said, no, 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 I'm not ripping off Star Wars. It's not what I was doing. It just worked out that way. Zorovec stopped her, said, you know what? I like Boba Fett. So if people think of the Spartans, or they think of Boba Fett, that's fine by me. And it was decided to make his armor red for a few reasons. Now, one, from a totally practical perspective, bright red armor made the captain stand out when compared to the rest of the environment and shadows and whatever, because, you know, it's generally a little more gray and brown. It was also a reference to the red capes of the Spartans. Finally, the captain's original job, that of a silencer, required that he use fear and intimidation. Now, what better way to do that than with a huge, hulking guy in red armor and a red, faceless helmet? I think it worked out pretty well. So from a gameplay perspective, Zorovec had a few main ideas about how he wanted Crusader to take form. First, each situation in the game should have multiple solutions. I explained that a little bit in the gameplay. So his example of why this was important was actually Doom. He said that Doom was a great first-person shooter, but it was a horrible maze game. You know, after you've killed all the enemies, searching for that damned red key to open the locked door was incredibly frustrating. Now, obstacles should never be put in the player's way just to infuriate them and waste time. Like in real life, there should be many ways to the end, not just one path that you get railroaded on. Now, this definitely added complexity to the level design, but Zervex strongly believed in it and said this was the way they were going to go. Secondly, he wanted there to be destructible environments. Now, this one's easy. He was of the strong belief that the world should act as close to reality as possible. If you shoot a shotgun at a glass wall, it should shatter. So should equipment. So should unsecured doors. People like blowing stuff up, especially in an action game. I mean, it added an additional visceral thrill to firefights. And, you know, sometimes that actually resulted in lucky shots that you didn't even know you were taking. You missed a guard? Well, you hit a barrel behind him, which falls on him and kills him and all of his compatriots. Hey, that's pretty awesome. Finally, the world, the plot, and uh, the main character all had to be strong. While the captain never actually speaks, he certainly is a strong presence in the game. And a lot of effort also went into the backstory of the world and the design in the, of the, uh, the environments. As with other Origin games, immersion was key and really did make you feel like you were in a world. You're not just playing through a level in a game. There's, you know, technicians that are milling around doing their own thing. They talk, they do things. It's, it's, it's actually quite interesting. Now, the choice to go with mod music was also no accident. Zurovec was originally an Amiga man, and he felt that the music and the sound on PC was just god-awful. He mentioned this opinion to one of his programmers, Stephen Eli. Well... It turns out that Steven had been working on a mod player in his spare time. Well, that sealed it. The programming schedule was modified so that Eli had enough time to complete his mod player and integrate it into the code base. He then went to get some internal origin musicians to, uh, to compose the soundtrack to the game. Now, Zorovic wanted good 80s and 90s electronica and rock. He wanted the music to be suited to the environments, you know, hard-hitting during missions, and relaxed when back at, uh, at uh, the Rebel camp. So these internal uh, musicians created a complete soundtrack. But Zorovec didn't quite like it. Uh, he kept one track, the Rebel bass theme, and then he contracted out to uh, Straylight Productions for the rest. He figured, you know what, if we're going to do mod music, let's get the best guys in the business. So that's the one and only reason the music between the Rebel bass and the rest of the game sounds so different. The Rebel bass music was actually from the original kind of uh, soundtrack run, and the rest of them were done by the Straylight guys. Also, since this is an origin game, it came with some great in-universe pack-in documentation outlining the world, much like uh, you know claw marks and Wing Commander, and uh, you know a lot of stuff from the uh, Ultima games. Just there was there was some really cool stuff showing us the state of the world, showing us how the WEC came to be, and and all that noise. 
Now, the development timeline of a game, at least an EA game at the time, was determined by marketing projections of the game's potential sales. Well, given that there weren't really any games of this type to compare to, marketing went, you know, kind of the safe route and and set the estimates quite low. Because, you know what, (laughs) if the game sold well, they'd look good. And if uh, they overestimated and the game didn't uh, hit its targets, they'd probably get in trouble. So this resulted in a pretty short 10-month development schedule. Well, as that initial 10-month schedule neared its end, Zervek realized that you know the game wouldn't be finished to his satisfaction. In fact, it probably wouldn't even be finished at all. He needed at least three more months to get things to a place where he was comfortable. Well, the only way he could get the timeline changed in a relatively large company like EA was to get the marketing guys to change their projections. He poked around and he set meetings with marketing both inside Origin and uh, in kind of EA North America. None of them would budge. Our numbers are accurate. There's nothing to compare this game to. No one knows what it's going to do. These are our numbers. Boom. That end of story. Luckily, while all this stuff was going on, a group of EA European marketing execs were visiting and uh, they were demoed the game. They were so impressed that they increased their sales estimates and Zuravec got his three months. With that, the game released on August 31st, 1995. Despite somewhat difficult to use controls, the game was unique, action-packed, and a lot of fun. It reviewed very well and became the most profitable standalone game Origin had ever released. The next year, in 1996, the game won Action Game of the Year from Computer Gaming World and was ranked the 38th best PC game of all time. Zervek had done it. He had a winner on his hands. This, of course, soon led to a sequel. Crusader No Regret takes place 46 hours after the events of the first game, with the silencer heading to the moon and making contact with the resistance there. Over the course of 10 missions, you undermine the WEC's hold on the moon, culminating in the defeat of Chairman Dragon and the destruction of the WEC's headquarters over there. The year is 2196. One renegade silencer takes on the World Economic Consortium, and they're not making it easy. Crusader, no regret. He's the Crusader. He's back in this explosive, non-stop action sequel. Crusader. No regret. Run, dive, slide, and roll with 21 fast action maneuvers. Infiltrate enemy compounds in 10 explosive levels. Annihilate your opponents with 15 devastating weapons. Shatter. Royal. Vaporize. And burn. Intruder alert. Unleash your attitude in the explosive sequel to the award-winning Crusader, No Remorse. Crusader, No Unleash your attitude. So No Regret uses the same base engine as the first game. It added more weapons, death by freezing and melting, uh, lifted the five-weapon carrying limit, which uh, I neglected to mention, and also eliminated the use of credits for upgrades from uh, from the first game. Now, Zoravec had to fight with Origin Marketing over the title of this game. They wanted to call it Crusader 2 No Regret, which makes perfect sense. But he was adamant that they remove the two, as he felt that there were not enough new features in gameplay to call it an actual sequel. Uh, due to the influence he had gained from the success of No Remorse, they relented and uh, two was kept off the box. No Regret released September 10th, 1996, and it sold well. Uh, the lack of innovation did cause it to review a bit lower than the first game. Now, Zorovec had begun thinking about an actual sequel, an actual Crusader 2, which he had dubbed Crusader 2 No Mercy. Well, it turns out another company had a trademark on No Mercy, 
And before he could get into any detailed concepts or even really think of a better name, a disagreement over royalties from uh, the sales of the previous games came to a head and Zorovec ended up leaving the company. Sadly, Crusader 2 was shelved and basically never looked at again. Now, it's Zorovec's belief that there will never be another Crusader game. Uh, he went on to found Digital Anvil with Chris Roberts and eventually formed his own company called Superluminal, which started off as a game developer, but uh, has now transformed into a hedge fund managing high-volume trading. And definitely an interesting twist. However, Zorovec isn't out of the game industry yet. Last May in 2014, he rejoined Origin alum Chris Roberts at Cloud Imperium Games and is managing the persistent universe development effort on Star Citizen. Hey, maybe we'll see some nods to Crusader in that world and maybe even in some of the FPS elements of, uh, of Star Citizen. Who knows? So where can we get our hands on Crusader No Remorse and Crusader No Regret? Well, you can either grab them from EA's Origin service for $5.99 USD each, or you can grab them DRM-free from GOG for the same price. Uh, they ran, the GOG versions at least, ran without any issue on my Win8 machine in their default docs box configurations. In fact, No Remorse was the first game I ever installed and played via GOG's new Galaxy client. Uh, it worked swimmingly. I'll talk about that more in next week's news show. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, as always, before we get to the verdict, we've got a few emails and a few voicemails. The first email is from Tomer. He writes, Hi, Joe. I don't actually have that much to say about Crusader since it's been way too many years since I've played it. One thing that did stick with me, though, is the game's terrific music, which a few years later I found was composed by none other than Andrew Sega, who is better known in the demo scene as Necros. A prolific author of tracker music in the 90s, Andrew was also a notable early PC game composer. Crusader's music is still fondly remembered by many, and practically everyone who grew up in the late 90s will remember Andrew's work on Unreal and Unreal Tournament. His earliest game work, to my knowledge, is, is a deservedly little-known space opera called Iron Seed, of which the only redeeming value is the soundtrack. Lastly, Andrew is also an acknowledged early influence on Alexander Brandon, another demo scene alumnus whose work includes many classic games from Tyrion, when are you going to cover that one, Joe, through Jazz Jackrabbit, Unreal, and Deus Ex. In all, a worthy historical pedigree to what I seem to remember was a groundbreaking game for its time. Looking forward to your show as usual, Tomer. Well, thank you, Tomer, and, and like I said, I know you're, you're definitely an expert in the demo scene, much more than I am, so it's great to get a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more insight into that uh, into that quote unquote subculture than uh, than what I have. It's actually really really cool, and I do wish I was more into it because the little pieces of it that I do have experience with are really cool and really impressive. And I know you've brought up a lot of uh, different little things, uh, little aspects of it in uh, in our previous talks. So uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, Tyrion and Jazz Jackrabbit and and all those others, I will certainly be covering. I haven't done a shmup in a while. I don't think I've ever done a shmup, so maybe I should. All right, so next, we've got an email from Trolls. And uh, you may be wondering how long it's going to be. Well, let's find out. Hello, Joe. Hello, fellow blockers. I am the Space Quest Historian. And uh, I'd like to apologize to all of you for monopolizing your time back in the uh, Carmageddon episode. Uh, in retrospect, that was pretty presumptuous of me to uh, submit a 10-minute-plus recording on how awesome I thought the game was. So uh, for this episode, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. I have never played any of the Crusader games. Thanks, Joe. Keep up the good work. Love you, man. Uh, see you next time. <laughs> Well, thank you, trolls. That was awesome. Uh, and and to be perfectly honest, no, it's 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 fine. I mean, you're even when your 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 voicemails are long, they're they're not blathery. They they do say things, but uh, you know, for people that do send in uh, that do send things in, a uh, couple minutes, you know, three to five, uh, I I have no complaints about whatsoever. Once they start getting longer than that, they they better be chock full of information for me to. Uh, I don't think I've ever not played a voicemail, but. Uh, yeah, let's keep them reasonable, but uh, trolls, you know, you're you're sort of my sidekick here at times, so uh, so I don't want any feeling bad. Keep on sending stuff in. I I need your voice on this show. So finally, we have a voicemail from our buddy Emery Akago. Take it away, sir. Yo, Joe. 
Just when you thought it was safe, I'm back again with another voicemail. I had to skip out on the last episode since I'd never played Spycraft, but Crusader is something that I've had plenty of experience with, seeing how it's actually the very first Origin Systems game I ever played. I actually first played the sequel No Regret way back when, since I came across that on one of those nifty bootleg Twilight discs that I've mentioned before. In fact, the same disc also contained the crippled version of Time Commando. But at the time, I was only aware of the first Crusader game since I'd read a review of that in a magazine, so I was pretty amazed to find that there was actually a sequel. Now, sadly, this was another CD-RIP version, so it was missing all of the FMVs and, more importantly, all of the music. Which was quite a shame, as I later found out that this game's music was pretty damn awesome. It also meant that whenever I got a call from one of my teammates or whoever during the game, my comm device would just keep incessantly beeping and when I tried to answer it, nothing happened, because there were no FMVs for the game to play at that point. So that was kind of confusing to me at the time. Nevertheless, the game itself was a blast. I was kind of used to first-person shooters at the time, so having a game like this shown from an isometric perspective was a refreshing change. And yeah, the controls were kind of clunky, as I'm sure you've already discussed at length during the actual episode, but the action was delightfully explosive. I had way too much fun just firing away at the scenery and watching every single little thing around me explode and visibly get damaged. To say nothing of murdering all of the enemies in increasingly brutal ways. Because the death animations in these games are absolutely glorious. Enemies could be blown up, set on fire, frozen and shattered, disintegrated, melted into a puddle, microwave, telefragged, and so on. I especially got a kick out of disintegrating enemies and watching them fade into nothingness as their last scream echoed away. But on top of that, the environments boasted a lot of interactivity in the form of turning valves, operating elevators and the like, or accessing computers, and occasionally taking control of droids and turrets for even more explosive enjoyment. I also liked that despite all of the carnage you could dish out, you still had to keep an eye out for traps and the like. Those damn little laser tripwires especially always snuck up on me when I least expected it. In any case, I beat the game, and years later finally got no remorse on GOG.com, which I played through and finished about a year ago, with all of the delightfully cheeseball FMVs and awesome tracker music intact. No doubt I'll get back to No Regrets sometime as well, so I can re-experience that in all of its glory. But in any case, Joe, keep being awesome, and remember... The alarm has been deactivated. Area secure. Oh, thanks, Everett, and, you know, I'm I'm glad that, that, uh, that you talked about what you did, because, yeah, I mean, I, I said that the world is very detailed and SVGA and all that stuff. But I didn't really talk about the animations because, yeah, the animations in this game are hilarious and the death stuff and people catching on fire and running around in circles and, you know, falling down dead and, and this and that is, you know, well, it's awful to say if, if you're taking it out of context. It's really well done and, and it does make it fun to, to try and find new and interesting ways to take people out. So thank you and thanks to everyone who, uh, who sent some stuff in as always. You are listening. So, does Crusader hold up today? Well, let's put it this way. I'm not going to give you an unequivocal yes here. Look, the game's controls are freaking awful to the point of being very frustrating. As I said, having the different modes is great in theory, but damn, it's easy to get messed up, to turn the wrong way, and then to have to turn painfully slowly back in the other direction to shoot your target, getting peppered with rounds and bombs and stuff all the while. On top of that, the missions are long. I think I played the first mission for almost an hour and a half, if not longer. I mean, in a way, it's great. The game lasts. In another way, I wasn't even sure if I was doing the right thing until I blasted my way far enough to trigger a mid-mission cutscene. Well, this does make the game drag a bit. I mean, you can save whenever you want, so it's not really a huge deal, but it just, like, keeps on going and going and going. Those issues aside, though, once I started to get the hang of things, I found myself having a lot of fun. I mean, the destructible environments, the multiple approaches, taking control of mechs, writing down passcodes and looting everything that moves was honestly a ton of fun. I mean, the music is great. The visuals are pretty cool, and, and honestly, even the FMV is pretty enjoyable in a cheesy FMV way, like Emery just said. Like I said, in a lot of ways, this is Fallout or Diablo without any of the RPG elements in it. It's a combat RPG without the RPG. So I'm not going to recommend it outright because it can certainly be frustrating. However, if you can get a handle on the controls, which I'm sure all of you can, and you don't mind the long missions where you can save whenever you want, give Crusader no remorse a try. If you enjoy that, 
try the sequel. It's basically more of the same with a few minor tweaks and, you know, a few kind of uh, nice enhancements. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, everyone, that is it for another show. Thanks to everyone who sent in their stuff and thank you for your patience in i guess the week ish delay on this show i meant to get it out earlier but uh, as i said i'm uh, spending a bit too much time outside i guess it looks like this summer uh and congrats to rico for the big uh, star wars giveaway win we'll hear about the next giveaway very soon next time well next week in fact we're gonna have our new show so it's not gonna break the schedule it's a couple of things have gone down and uh we should talk about them after that we're going to do a game that is very special to me, very unique, and very interesting. It is Star Wars Rebellion. So I'm really, really looking forward to getting back into that. I'm going to stream a whole bunch of that. Didn't get a chance to stream Crusader, but uh, Rebellion holds a special place in my heart. And we'll see if it holds up, because frankly, it was a little iffy at the time, and uh, I played a lot of it anyways. So as always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Please do. I love them. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. He's a really, really talented, talented man. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can become my boss over at patreon.com slash umbcast. If you find some value from the podcast, please consider joining my 39 current patrons and donating a buck or two per show to help us hit the next goal of weekly Let's Plays. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to choose some games, maybe games all... Uh, I'll cover for the show, maybe some newer stuff, but, uh, you know, I'll put it up for you guys to decide. I've got a couple of plans already, but we got to get to 150 bucks an episode. So check out the show notes for this show at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally at billybob476 on the Twitter. You can also find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast, where I put up videos on my game research sessions and hopefully soon some Let's Plays. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream it live at Stitcher Radio, please leave me some podcast reviews, I haven't got any in a a long time, and uh, hey, if you do, maybe I'll start reading them on the show. Next time I get one, I'll read it on the show. Uh, So that is that, and we will see you next time for Rebellion, here in the Upper Memory Block.
Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.